0: There are rattlesnakes here. Uh-huh. They're not thick, and you probably won't see one. I'm, just
1: to I'm Rosie Julin and this is Pop Curia. those places that matches your imagination. You've seen the pictures, heard the stories, and it's still everything you want it to be. Unending horizons, deep blues and greens on one end, bleached whites and gold on the other. So much sky. I loved Montana. It touched the part of my heart that is just a little bit wild. This episode we're focused on more of a lifestyle and culture than any one town. I drove all over Montana to the top northwest corner near the mountains of Glacier National Park in the Canadian border, to a ghost town in the southwest corner near the Idaho and Wyoming borders, and as far east as Miles City, about an hour out from North Dakota. I was based in Billings, Montana's largest city, with just over 100,000 people, where I did one interview. My next closest interview was an hour away. The rest fell somewhere from two to six hours away. I spent a lot of time in the car, and as a result, I saw how the landscape went from an unending horizon to fuzzy bluish peaks in the distance to snow-capped mountains towering overhead. Around here, an hour drive is close. I overheard a conversation in the library in Roundup where some guy had just run an errand that was three and a half hours away, one way. As you drive around, the train is often your only companion. There would be an occasional dirt driveway leading off into the distance, but you don't actually see a house. You drive through little communities with only a couple hundred people. There, Main Street consists of a grain elevator next to the railroad tracks, a handful of buildings, a church, a school, maybe a bar. Western Montana is where most of the tourists go, where most Montanans live. Bunny Miller lives in Eastern Montana, in Miles City, where she's the curator at the Range Riders Museum. Miles City prides itself on being an old, rough and tumble Wild West kind of place. It was a major hub during the old cattle drives. Main Street still has more saloons than churches. Miles City was one of the larger communities I passed through with about
2: 8,400 people. Here's funny. Yeah, I think Montana is really two states, you know, the western part and the eastern part because of the fact that um, if you're a tourist, and you're going to go to the state, you want to see the waterfalls and the mountains and all, and the wildlife that's up there. And then you come down here and you drive forever and ever and ever. And But there's beauty in the yellows and the tans as well as there is in the dark greens of the western state.
1: The state's geography is rural, parceled out after the Homestead Act but many montanans lived experience is a little different ed kemick a former reporter and editor for the billings gazette shares his experience
3: yeah well i think i think really the greatest single misconception is is that montanans are rural i mean i'm i'm something of a city slicker myself i mean i live I live in Montana, so if you told that to 90% of the people in America, they would think that I live in a cabin, you know, on a mountaintop or something, or I live on a farm. The truth is I live in a loft apartment that used to be a meat warehouse uh, 50 feet from the railroad tracks in the middle of the biggest city in Montana. I'm guessing that more than a large majority of Montanans actually live in urban settings. I mean, they're, they're not big cities by anybody else's standards. You know, if, if a town has 40,000 people, that's probably considered a, a township back east. But out here, it's, it's urban, you know, and that's where, that's where most people live in Montana. There aren't that many farmers and ranchers left.
1: So first, I want to acknowledge that we are not exploring what most Montanans experience this episode. We are exploring what it's like to live in those small communities that feel a bit untouched, where you can still imagine what life was like when it was the Wild West. It's a highly romanticized idea, yes, but our collective memory of the West is so wrapped up in the way we see ourselves as Americans, as independent, making our own way. You know the stories. Edith Sloan lives in Roundup, an old coal mining town in central Montana, along with about 1,800 other people. She studies her town's local history and will
4: share one of these stories. Uh, The maiden would be a very beautiful young woman. She would know how to ride her horses, and she would be daring and courageous and independent, and in would ride the white-hatted cowboy on his white stallion and he would reach down pick her up and they would ride off into the sunset together ever lastingly happy. Well, you know there are clo- there are stories that are somewhat like that but but not quite reality kind of bumps up against some of that.
3: You know, it's the west is so much a product of myth that it's really hard to separate out what was true and what is true from what wasn't and what is still not true. You know, there's there's this idea that these rugged individualists built the West, and they, to some extent they did, but they had a lot of help from their neighbors and the government. But I think there is partly because of the myth, you know, a different mindset out here. I mean, it's, it's easier to believe that you are kind of a freestanding human being when you live out here, especially if you live out in the sparsely populated parts of the state because, you know, you're just surrounded by immensity and emptiness and unbelievable beauty.
1: This myth has been recreated in films, books, and perhaps now with this podcast. But they notice. One rancher told me that if you watch westerns made in the 60s and 70s, you won't see any tall grass because the land had been overgrazed. When the cowboys were actually moving their cattle through Montana, the grass would have been much higher. And then there's this. How often have we seen this in movies?
2: You never ride a horse in a gallop through a group of cattle. That's just a no-no. I used to hate to go to Westerns with my grandpa because he was always critiquing everything. You can't shoot somebody that far away with a pistol. You know, a lot of it is depicted very well, and just, you know, some of those types of things, you're like, oh my goodness, I'd have got a whipping if I'd have done that.
1: We picture a cowboy on a horse, out with his cattle. These days, a lot of the ranching is actually done on a four-wheeler, but you'll never hear about that. And although Montana was big grazing land for cattle, it also used to be great sheep country. So my million-dollar question, why do we only know about the cows?
4: How how exciting are sheep? I mean, <laughs> I mean, that they did, really not more well, they get in. They get into um, what do you call those? Where they run, 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 run. Stampedes. They they create stampedes, and one of the things you have to do at night to keep them calm, so that no loud sound will frighten them and they stampede, is you ride in a circle around the cattle and you sing. You sing to them.
1: (laughs) There's a lot of nostalgia wrapped up in what ranching and cowboying used to be like. But here's what hasn't changed. It's hard work and unending. There's always something that needs to get done.
4: The fact that they work their tails off. The people that grew up on ranches here do not have an easy life. And you don't get to go riding off into the sunset with your white hat and have that be the happiest point. Everything that's done, they do on their ranch.
0: And of course, farm and ranch kids, they don't know what an eight-hour day is. If you got work to do, you work. You know, if you're in the middle of and you might work Till the middle of the night sometimes' or harvesting. It's not like that all the time. I mean you got harvesting, cabin season because those cows don't know it's dark and it's cold and they shouldn't be cabin. you got to be out there checking them and So you' ranching you might some days you might work eight hours and some days you might work 20. just depends on what's going on, what breaks. Equipment always breaks. That's why I'm so greasy. I was working on a bailer.
1: This is Scott Simmons. Scott Simmons has been cowboying for years. His word, not mine. He's a rancher, but now raises horses on about 20 acres in Cutbank in northwestern Montana. He walks with a slight bowleg. He and his family have at least 20 pairs of cowboy boots in his garage. I asked him what he loves about cowboying.
0: I love working cows on horses. Not much of a four-wheeler cowboy.
1: But being a cowboy is not as glamorous as the movies. The day-to-day looks much different.
0: Well, it's not just out there riding through happy cows and grass. You're out there in storms and weather. and you know, There's still some roping and stuff like that, but it's, it's not something you do for fun. It's if there's a sick animal and he's out in the middle of nowhere and you need to treat it, you have to rope it. Still brand. Some people use a brand table. I like to rope them. It's quicker if you got a good roper.
5: My husband, that's his favorite time of year is branding season. And they all ride horses every day and they rope them and drag the calves. They don't use calf tables. Just like to do it with the open, you know, the fire, branding fire. You know, so many things that we do today, you know, the the new automation ways of like farming and things you know but with branding season they just like to slow it down and keep it western keep it back to the roots
1: that's candy murnan candy lives in jordan population 343 people and is vice president for her local chamber of commerce candy and her husband run a few businesses in and around jordan including their family ranch Jordan is about an hour and a half from Miles City and close to three hours from Billings. And there is just not much of anything in between. Now Jordan is one of those stoplight towns. Not all towns I drove through can say that. And they have a nice grocery store, hardware store, and a coffee shop. But they still have to travel a ways anytime they need something or want to do something.
5: Well, Jordan is 90 miles from the closest Walmart. (laughs) And that can be a factor, I mean, um, our church, for instance, has had trouble keeping young pastors at times because their wives it's too far to go out to dinner to McDonald's or Walmart or, you know, there's anything like the movie theater. It's it's 90 miles to mile city almost, and that's where it all is. So you just have to plan. Um, we stockpile. You know, I have this massive pantry and... People joke about even here in town how much food I have, because you never know. You might not, might be a blizzard come by in the middle of the winter, and you might not be able to get to town. So we've always stockpiled things. And that's something you just don't run to the store every day if you live, you know, 30, 40 miles from town. I mean, I only live 10 miles from town, so it's not an issue.
1: Ed Chemick suggested I go check out the Walmart parking lot while in Billings. Walk around and you'll see license plates from all corners of eastern Montana and northern Wyoming. People drive for hundreds of miles to do their grocery shopping. They stock up, maybe enjoy the big city for a few hours, then drive back with their groceries for the next few months. Jordan is the county seat for Garfield County, which is one of the most sparsely populated counties in the United States. In fact, when measuring the number of people per square mile, it's the third least populated county in the United States outside of Alaska. And even though people are so spread out, when I ask Candy what's the most important thing to know about living here, she says,
5: I would have to say probably the close-knitness of a community. You might live 50 miles from somebody you call your neighbor. And if that neighbor is in need, the whole community comes together to support that person. Everybody seems like family. I mean, being people that are born and raised out in the middle of nowhere don't get nervous being isolated. I mean, if you were to move out here, you might feel insecure to be, you know, 25 or 30 miles from town. And that's where your house is. I mean, there's people that are are 50 miles off the highway to town.
1: Ranching has changed quite a bit over the years. The technology they use has gotten much more advanced and much more expensive. And as business owners, it's not easy to make a profit after the cost of the initial personal investment. By the time you add up the land, the cows, the tractors, you have a lot of capital, but not a lot of cash flow. And the new technology's faster pace has changed the pace of ranching. Remember how Candy said one of the few times the community was able to get together was during branding season?
5: It's harder and harder to make a living Because of the cost of equipment versus the payout in the with the product, Um, like wheat, right now a bushel of wheat is bringing about what it was 30 or 40 years ago, but the machinery is 40 or 50 times higher. So, in order to try to make a living. You know, instead of slowing down on Sundays, a lot of them are still. You know, they work seven days a week, daylight till dark, and it's to make ends meet.
1: So Scott teaches all things ag, about 30 minutes away from Cupping, and during our conversation, he started teaching me. He described every step of ranching in detail. Like, how it costs the same amount to feed a bad cow as a good cow. How a rancher ends up buying retail and selling wholesale, when it should be the other way around. How if a calf gets separated from its mom, it'll go back to where it last nursed. And throughout our conversation, he would check in to see if I was following along. I did okay at first. Do you know what branding is? Well, sure, from the movies. Do you know what I mean by sorting cows? Nope. Well, you sort cows that are out grazing by owner, by using the branding. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Are you aware of the Homestead Act? Yes, but I'm drawing from knowledge that dates back to elementary school. Do you know what 160 acres looks like? No. (laughs) He then laid out the history of Montana by the different grazing laws and their effects on the grass. Shortly after Custer's last stand, yep, we're going that far back, they brought in large herds of cattle from Texas. He describes how the grass probably would have looked. Really tall and overgrown because the buffalo were largely gone at that point and they would have just started bringing in cattle. And he would say things like, As you know, the range developed under heavy buffalo pressure. Well, I don't really know and I've never really put much thought to it. Then it started getting a little too technical for this liberal studies major. The rule of thumb when grazing is you take half and leave half on the biomass. What is a biomass? The different types of plants to get nitrogen back into the soil, different ways to build up moisture in the soil, the history of how they first used to summer fowl, then chem-fowl, and now they're doing this thing called CRP. As this train of thought went on, I must have had a blank look on my face
4: because he said
0: Yeah, I'm talking about CRP and all this stuff, and you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm a city girl. This,
1: uh, this might be the smallest community I've ever been to, I will be honest.
0: Really? Got everything you need.
1: (laughs) I went to Cutbank before I went to Jordan. Jordan is now the smallest place I've ever been. So we went for a drive.
0: And there aren't near as many farmers as there used to be, but ag business and the related industries is huge. It's... I've heard anywhere from 11 to 25% of the jobs are involved in agriculture one way or the other, and there's less than 2% that are actually on the land anymore. But it's gotten so big and you need, for example, we are talking about the Homestead Act of 1909, they figured 50 cows would raise a family. Now it's at least 300. And equipment's gotten bigger, and that's one one reason rural Montana's falling apart. Is all these ranchers used to have? You know, they put up little bales of hay, and they fed little bales of hay, and they did all their work a horseback, and they didn't have big tractors, and they needed help for a 300 cow outfit. Now, 300 cow outfits just going to be just going to be the family, mostly dad. Okay, this is CRP. So, what they do is they pay you, not the farm. But you have to get, they come out and check it and make sure it's healthy and it's weed free. So we have, we have some wheat grasses out there and alfalfa, brome grass out there, probably some crested wheat grass. And at first they wouldn't let you do anything unless there was a drought or an emergency. But now you can hay it one in five years, which keeps the coarse, wolfy plants down and we get some new growth. I think it ought to be more like every other year. Or graze it, responsibly graze it. But none of these are native species, show you what it used to look like on the other end of town if you want to see what the native grass looks like. It's in rougher ground. It's not where, it's not a place they could actually farm, but any place that's been farmed at one time. These little towns used to be huge. There was somebody, there was a family on every 320 acres.
1: Little towns like Cutbank, Jordan, and Roundup are all over Montana, including some of the most remote parts of the state. Cutbank is the county seat for Glacier County in the top left corner of the state, near Glacier National Park, and less than an hour from the Canadian border. About 3,000 people live here. And Cutbank is also one of the largest towns that Scott has ever lived in. They have a McDonald's, which is always busy, a grocery store where folks from the ranches, the neighboring reservation, and the Hooterite Colony shop, and a handful of new restaurants and bars. They even have a new brewery. When you drive into town from the west, you drive past a 27-foot-tall cement penguin, With a pink beanie welcoming you into town and marking Cutbank as the coldest spot on record in the continental U.S. As we drive through town which is about a mile across Scott points out the local sites and he talks about how things have changed not just for this town but small towns like this in general. The sawmill closed down and fewer folks are coming to towns like this to work on farms and ranches because new technology made them no longer necessary. So schools are getting smaller and smaller. When he first started teaching in the 80s, his school, a different school at the time, had 40 kids. They now have seven in the entire K through 12. The school that he teaches at now has 54 kids in high school. And as soon as a town loses its school, the community just kind of dies.
0: I don't know if you want it get out and walk and see the difference or you just want me to point it out, it's up to you.
1: We stopped by the other side of town to look at the native grasses on a hillside just off the highway. A stream with clear blue water curves around the hillside. Elevated train tracks cut across the stream.
3: There
0: are rattlesnakes here. They're not thick and you probably won't see one. I'm just to you. That Grass came from Russia. Actually native. This this is native here.
1: There's a tremendous amount of knowledge that comes from working with your hands. They have a deep appreciation for the land, mouth, the water, the rain, a stronger connection to sound,
0: and smell. smell. so that's called Globe
1: they appreciate all that comes with it, the mice the birds, even the snakes my time in Montana was spent thinking about things that I don't normally think about I've never had to think about what it might mean if the nearest hospital is 90 miles away I can go see a movie really anytime I want to Or something even more basic, like going to the grocery store. My fridge back home is generally pretty sparse. I do not have a stockpile, because I don't need to. I have five grocery stores within a ten-minute walk of my house. And I don't think much about where my food comes from. The folks who live out in these small towns are resilient. They know how to do things, fix things, create a lot from a little. They make it work. As we made our way back, Scott continued to point out the different types of tractors alongside the road. The grain elevators on the railroad tracks, the different types of grass, both native and non native. At this point, I was feeling just so out of my element. My brain felt like it had stopped working. I was drawing a blank on questions. These are then he showed me his horses. The yearlings came right over to nibble on the microphone, ready for their big debut. The little one? Yeah. What would you call that? A
0: pony. A pony. Is that one pony. <laughs> okay.
1: It was a pony. Ugh. My brain was so I'm spent at this point with all this man, new information. I didn't know I was looking at a pony. Everyone I met in these small towns had a tremendous amount of pride for where they live and what they do. And that's not how their way of life is perceived. I spoke to ranchers that were teachers, ranchers that were lawyers, ranchers that ran multiple businesses. Everyone I spoke to in these small towns were educated and articulate. Yet when I asked how they thought they were perceived by folks in more urban settings, folks like myself, the answer was overwhelmingly the same.
0: Well, uh... I'll tell you a story, I had a... My uncle got remarried, so I had all of a sudden a new cousin, he was 15, he lived in Salt Lake City. And he asked me to have him for a month or so in the summer. And he expected a fat guy and coveralls with a straw hat and straw on his teeth. And then he got here and he saw that, how we were putting up the hay, and we had computers in our tractors and vaccinating programs and figure out, do the algebra to figure out uh, the rations so they get everything they need. And there are no dumb hillbilly farmers left. Uh, Agriculture has always been one of the leaders in technology.
5: I think that they pass us off as just a bunch of hicks. At some point, we stopped teaching urban Americans where their their food chain came from. And they think they don't need us because they can go to the grocery store. I feel it's kind of too bad that that
2: that connotation is still around a little bit that just because you live out on the ranch and that you work and you drive a tractor that means you're uneducated and that's not so. If you're, if you're not educated, you can't make that ranch work. You still have to know about business. You still have to know about economics. You still have to know about the conservation. You still have to know all of these things to make it a productive business for you. Just because your office is in the corner of the living room doesn't mean that you don't have what it takes to be a businessman.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Pop Curia. As always, if you have questions or comments, please reach out through Instagram or our website. We want to hear from you. And if you're thinking of starting your own podcast, I have a starter pack of five interview tips for you. Learn how to ask great questions like, why do we only know about the cows? And what would you call that? Check it out at popcuria.info slash five interview tips.